שיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Shalom, and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malm in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me today, as always, are good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler in Long Island, Salman Schechter of Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Kavanche Chesed in Manhattan, New York City, where it is a little warmer than everywhere else on Earth. I want to turn it to Rabbi Kalmanovsky to offer a, a word of dedication of this broadcast. Go ahead. You know, we do take requests here at Parsha Talk, and we sometimes dedicate our broadcast to a, a one or another person uh, in our circles from Camp Ramah or in our communities. And, and this week, uh, we had, or the last couple weeks, we had we had big news in my congregation in Ancha Chesed and, and in, uh, in the corner of the world that, that we occupy at the Jewish Theological Seminary, who named its, its new chancellor, uh, Professor Shuli Rubin Schwartz, a great friend of mine for many, many years. And so we're going to dedicate today's Parsha talk to the new chancellor, Professor Schwartz, who sent it with great, with great love and great wishes for much success uh, in, in, the coming, uh, in the coming years. Mazel tov, mazel tov. Mazel tov. And, and I guess we couldn't have picked a, a more appropriate Parsha for, to inaugurate or to at least dedicate to, to uh, the new chancellor-elect, Chancellor Shuli Rubin Schwartz. Uh, now, I'm saying that, that this Parsha is filled with movement. It's filled with lots of disputation, displacement, disruption, dystopia, despondency. There, there's just so much uh, going on in this Parsha and too much to choose from. Uh, it starts out with the menorah, talks about Levi'im, talks about Pesach Sheni. Uh, but let's, let's focus for a second on this passage, a beautiful passage, referring to how the people of Israel moves through the desert. And then, um, later on, a few verses later, we get verses that are very familiar to a synagogue-going public, which is which, which the, the pair of verses that we recite when we take the Torah. And then, so let's just reflect on movement for a moment and, and how Bamidbar really is about movement and what, what is happening physically and maybe what's happening emotionally. You want to take that on? Barry Chesler. Barry Chesler. I, I was waiting. Um, I'd first like to point out that the two verses that you mentioned, Elliot, uh, as we know, and as people who come to the Torah know, are bracketed by a pair of nuns that set them apart. There's a rabbinic tradition that the Chumash is actually seven books of Moses, that, in fact, these two verses constitute their own book of the Torah, and therefore we have the section of Bimidbar that comes before and the section of Bimidbar that comes after. And so, in addition to the other four books, we have seven books. What is intriguing about these two verses is that it's a call to God, that God is supposed to get up and God is supposed to come back. And we use them in our prayer service at the synagogue when we take out the Torah and when we return the Torah, because that is our manifestation of God. We live within the Torah, both physically and spiritually, 
and we call the Torah to to move. We watch it move throughout the uh, synagogue. It's the custom to follow it with our eyes, to turn our bodies as the Torah moves. And therefore, as you mentioned when we were talking before, Elliot, we have an experience or can have an experience of being in the wilderness with our ancestors as they were wandering or walking, sometimes with great purpose and direction, with God leading them. Jeremy, anything? Yeah, yeah this, that was a great, great observation. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, these two lines, get up God, scatter your enemies, and, um, and rest God, and we all, all of the tens of thousands of, of Israel will, will rest with you. Um, I was thinking about the, the almost, I, I, it would be outrageous to call something idolatrous, but the point of idol worship is, is, is not that the ancient people didn't think that God was a hunk of rock or a hunk of stone when they worshiped an idol. They, they felt that an object represented something. And, and I'm just thinking about the passage of the Torah and the, the way you said, this is our manifestation. This is a book. This is a unique book, a book we love so much, a book that when it's not COVID, we kiss when it goes past us. And it does manifest something bigger than just the text. Because a chumash has the same words, but doesn't have the same power. Um, and, you know, I think that Aron Brit Adunai, the, the Ark of the Covenant of God, which traveled before the people, that was an object. It had a visible manifestation. And I, I, I read in this passage that sense that, yeah, they really had a sense that in the visible manifestation, they were following the divine. And... Um, and I think that's, first of all, beautiful in, in its own way. And I also like the sense in this pasuk, in these pasukim, that our own journeys in life, forward, backward, resting, driving forward, they are following God. Um, and I hope, that we, I hope that religious people can feel that they are following the divine as they, as they go through life. It's so interesting. I mean, you mentioned that because, you know, often we, we don't feel or we feel that we, we don't know how, you know, where, where God is or or how God is manifest in our lives. And so that uh, creates a, a tremendous de degree of uncertainty, a tremendous degree of, of waywardness. I, I want to touch on one aspect of it, which is I, uh, the, the thought that goes into my mind when reciting these verses is not so much, you know, those calls, but um, how B'nai Israel is trying, how the synagogue is trying to recreate the desert community. That that in that moment that we are taking the Torah out, we are summoning uh, a different part of ourselves. I'll call it the, the ritual self. It's not my, my coinage. Uh, we're summoning an aspect of self that takes us out of our present reality and puts us into the desert so that we are becoming, once again, the desert. And I think, of course, that's the, the central theme of synagogue worship, that we are constantly evoking the, the desert because that is the place of formation of Jewish peoplehood. We were formed in the desert, and these moments of movement formed us. So if I can just, go ahead, if go I can just add here, in the Torah, these two verses come together. They're collapsed, as it were. Yeah. But in the synagogue, we open them up, and we create a space between them, uh, both physically and spiritually, because we separate them. We bracket the Torah service. So the two nuns bracket the verses in the Torah itself, but in our synagogues, we bracket the Torah service with these two verses. Excellent. Wonderful. 
I, I wanted to make the observation about the, these verses, and and we, we mentioned last week, we talked about Birkat HaKonim, which is in Numbers chapter 6, back there in, in Nassau, um, the only really obvious piece of liturgy in, in the Torah that, you know, every day you're supposed to say, the priests are supposed to bless them, and say this, you know, quote, Yivarech Adonai Vishmerech, etc. It's the, it's, it's maybe not the only, only piece of liturgy, but it's the most prominent. And then one week later, we get this one, yeah. which is not exactly portrayed as liturgy, but it is portrayed as Moses' kind of formal speech. Like, uh, when, the, when the ark moved, and here's what Moses would say, and he would, like, it's almost a chance. Arise, Lord, and scatter your enemies. And when it would stop, he would say, Israel. Uh, Moses is is like reciting a formal liturgy. Maybe also uh, in, in Devarim, Arami Oved Avi has, has that same passage, has that same thing. But the Torah is not really long on stuff you're supposed to say, whereas Judaism over the centuries has become very heavy about stuff you're supposed to say. And so I appreciate in these passages, um, you know, maybe a little piece of really, really ancient liturgy, prayers. And therefore, again, we are re- recreating that when we, when we invoke these words. Well, let's look at the next, very next passage, chapter 11 in Baha'u'llah, in, in, in Bamidbar. The people took to complaining bitterly before the Lord. I, I, I don't know why this would be so important. Uh, you know, people never complain. You know, the That's why complain. I like working in a synagogue, because nobody ever complains, nobody and complains. everyone is always satisfied. We are always satisfied. But, but here is, of course, part of the, the sarcasm. Um, this is, I think, the, the central drama. I mean, this is why Bamidbar is such a great book, because it's, it's so replete with, with, with conflict, with frustration, with complaining. The people are very real. What are they complaining about? They're complaining about food. But, but well, at least not only food, they're, they're complaining about not having meat. Not having meat. So, so, Just two weeks after Shavuot. Right. Clamoring for me. So let's let's go into the passage. There's a, there's a, a preamble, a first part, which which is a complaint, which doesn't specify what they're complaining about. And then it says It's a very hard word. The rabble, the riffraff, a sherbiker bohitavutava. They had what they call a taiva, <laughs> a yearning, a hunger, a craving. What did they have a craving for? We want meat. Vegetarian. Very. I'm just looking at your shirt there. It's like a like a tablecloth there. <laughs> <laughs> I got it in an Italian restaurant. That's how I got it. <laughs> anyway, they want meat. All of a sudden, Zacharno Let's remember the fish. We eat it for free. The melon, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. I got cucumbers also. I, I, I taught it this week. I said cucumbers and melons, they're water. They're refreshing. And leeks, onions, and garlic, they're aromatics, right? That's what we remember. We remember being refreshed and having taste. Life is so bland when all you have is mana, mana daily, morning, evening, night. I can't stand it, even if you bake it. And... What is, Jeremy, can you identify with, Mo, I, mean, not, I want to say identify, but just explain for us Moses' reaction. 
Well, I, I do, I do want to to speak to that, um, but I want to say that also that to me, one of the, the the key things, you know, you know what is always going to make God mad in the Torah? We we miss Egypt. <laughs> you know, they say When people start getting nostalgic about Egypt, then you know trouble's on its way because um, because. God's direction here in this book, in, in the Torah Bichlal, but in, in Bamidbar, is we have to drive forward through the desert. It's hard, it's difficult, but we're going someplace great. And the people are just, ah, they can't, they can't, they can't cut away um, their nostalgic memories. You know, they romanticize the past. And so what do they remember about Egypt? Do they remember the pyramids? Do they remember the beatings? Do they remember the babies in the river? They remember the fish. And the melons. I think that's a common tendency in human beings. I mean, there's a certain nostalgia for the Jewish past. You know, we all, we all, we, you know, renew our days as of old. I'm, you know, when you really analyze that, I'm not sure. Do we really want to go back to where that? So Moshe, you asked about Moshe's reaction. Uh, this is, is a really fascinating passage uh, because, first of all, it's one of the most interesting, slightly gender-bendy passages in the Torah. Moses speaks of himself, and, and because Hebrew is a gendered language, it's almost impossible to speak in a gender-neutral way in Hebrew, uh, because every verb, every, every noun, every adjective has marked and unmarked forms. Moses speaks of himself using the, um, using the, the masculine um, uh, verbs and nouns as uh, a kind of a, a mother figure. Uh, did I uh, conceive this child? Did I carry it uh, as a pregnant woman? Um, can I bear this 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 people kasher men et hayonik as the nurse? But omenet is the is the word because obviously only women can nurse a child. But can I bear this child? Can I bear this people kasher men et hayonik? as a masculine, the valenced um, nurse man would bear this child. Can I keep, you know, nursing this child with the man, with, with nursing this people, so to speak, with the manna, which is itself described in this milky, uh, in this milky kind of way. Um, I can't do this alone. I want right. to just, just tack on to that for a second, because, because you, you make a great point here. The manna is, is, is like a dairy, a dairy food. It has the, the, the texture of creme fraiche, fresh cream, right? Mm. And, and um, but dairy is an infant food in antiquity, and here the people want meat. And so what, what I see underneath this, and of course Moses already sees himself, am I, am I their mother, basically? The, the conflict is, here are the people that they are, they are being infantilized in the food that they eat. They want to eat grown-up food. So was it it's curious, you know, we translate basar as meat, but here it probably means flesh. Flesh. Because they complain about not having fish, and as we're going to see, they're going to get poultry. <laughs> right? They're not going to get meat. Basar. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but Moses' role here is kind of odd, because he's asking God, where am I going to get all this meat from? I want to give them meat. I want to satisfy their needs. How can I do this? 
What, do you think God can't pull this one off? Well, but what's God's response? No. Take it to the end. He goes, he's so frustrated here. If this is what you, God, are doing to me, kill me now. Kill me now. If I find pleasure with you, let me not see any more of my wretchedness. And there's some commentary, their wretchedness, my wretchedness. You know, he, it's, it's like, take me now. I'm, it's, I'm done. I'm done with these people. I quit the stupid job. I quit. And, and I mean, I, I, you know, which, which, is, the, which is the midbar thing, right? Yes. Um, you're in the midbar and you say, okay, that's it. I quit. All right. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? So you have to feel for Moshe in this situation. But do we have any feel for God? Is God also actually pained in all of this? That his dream for the people and for his leader is falling apart before his eyes? So, I mean, if you were teaching this to, to students, how I would say, go see Rabbi Malamud in Highland Park. Thank you very much. Okay, and I'll be God. I will tell you okay. what I'm thinking. Clearly, which one of us is gonna? Which one of us is gonna voice the role of God? I will voice the voice. <laughs> but, you know, say I still have hope for you. You will be okay. And so maybe that's how we should understand the next passage. Espa li shivim ish. God saying to Moses, "Okay, yeah, I, I understand. You're you're really frustrated." You know what? You know why you're frustrated? Because you have this problem, Moses. You try to do everything by yourself, right? We've already been through that with Yitro. So uh, get yourself uh, a little bit of a, a counsel. You know, I wonder, that's hearkening to Yitro and Moses' problem of dealing with all by himself. That's absolutely true. And, and it's also true, I wonder if there's a, um, you know, we, we've grown accustomed to thinking about God as the, you know, as Maimonides, what is the principle of perfection? Um, just perfection, metaphysical perfection by definition. And yet there's a lot of stories that you read in the Tanakh that, um, that actually predate Maimonides, some of them, that, uh, that um, it seems like God is not the principle of perfection, that God is also kind of learning as God goes and trying to figure out how the creation can you know, how to, how to make that, that inner divine perfection fit this very rough creation. It certainly is true in the beginning of Breshit with the, with the human failings and, and Adam and Noah and, and the various stuff like the, the angels marrying the human females. And I sort of get this here too, okay? We're in the desert. This is really hard. All right. Give me a plan B for a little bit, all right? Yeah, I'm gonna, sure. I'm gonna, you don't have to do this by yourself. I'm going I'm to give you a, a respite. Look, the, the, and that is the, the council, the shivim, the Sanhedrin that becomes. Is that the respite? Is that, or share the burden of leadership, basically, to, to manage the people. In so, and what's the reaction, though? The people, they prophesy in the camp and someone who's identified in one of the commentators as Gershom comes to complain to Moshe that people are doing your job. Moshe says, and Moshe fine. says, I wish everyone would do my job. Well, I, I would go a little differently. I mean, yes, that is certainly that, that the complainer's job, the complainer's role to Moshe is, Hey, they're usurping your authority. 
but Moses has just what's the best line um, in this wonderful passage? He says, um, I wish that everybody had the hand of God on them. I wish that everybody. So we read that as saying that Moshe wishes everyone would be like him, right? I'm saying I'm saying that Moses wishes that everybody would feel the presence of God, not necessarily be like him. So the question is, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about the Torah, as well as other kinds of literature, is that there's no tone. So we don't always know how to read things. Is this supposed to be meant, perhaps ironically, that everyone should suffer like I suffer? Uh Okay. (laughs) That's different. Um, You know, I would say, I, I would take the different tack. I would take maybe the Pshat tack, tack here, which is, which is, you know, he, he is described, you know, subsequently as Anav. He is, he is described as very humble. It takes a very humble person to acknowledge that, that other people can rise to, to greatness, that I don't, I'm not jealous of them, right? You know, here we are, we're a bunch of rabbis, you know, the, the stories in, in, in rabbinic lore of jealousy of, uh, you know, it's in Talmud, jealousy of rabbis and their students, jealousy that, um, you know, people have with each other. I mean, it's, it's to, you're not, what, what's I'm looking for? Sometimes masters are jealous of their students. Parents are never jealous of their children. Or are they? I don't know. I mean, you know, what, what, is, what does it mean to be humble in terms of, the desire to lead people and the desire to bring them to a to a certain place would wouldn't you love it um barry jeremy elliot wouldn't you love it if in your midst family or community you could raise a student a child a person a a a disciple no a, a student who goes on and makes accomplishments that are way beyond what you've done i mean i wouldn't we love that? Absolutely. 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 I think that would be the, 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 most, the most effective validation of what we are, is that if, 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 if a student could surpass any one of us and say, you know, thank you for what you have, and I'm taking it a step further. You know? Yeah, but I think that in the human drama, when we get to that point, most of us find it very hard to let go that we didn't quite mean that we wanted to be surpassed. We wanted them to come close. In Torah, I, here, I, I'm, I don't wanna, what I wanna say is go for it. Yes, absolutely. Get, get as much as you can. I mean, that's what you're, that's what you're here for. Uh, I, I wanna read this one about Eldad and Medad, the two guys who, the two guys who carry their prophecy uh, beyond the, beyond the, um, the, the expectations of the other, of their colleagues, uh, long, they keep prophesying longer. You know, I, I think that because Elliot said earlier in this conversation, we were talking about following the ark and following the path of the Lord. There's so much in life that makes you feel um, that you don't hear the voice and that you don't feel the inspiration. And if you're a religious teacher, um, you, you don't even have to, you don't even have to, take it in the way that you guys are talking about the anxiety of, of influence and how do you feel about your, how do you feel about your teachers and how do you feel about your students? You, you can just say like, if, if you were, if you, we work in shuls and schools and, and if people have like an amazing experience davening, 
you say to yourself, see, this is what it was for, right? You have an amazing experience learning. Yeah. A kid comes to you and says, this is so exciting. You, you say to yourself, see, this is what I want for all of you guys. I, I want you guys to be able to sense the busha, the, the holiness. And that's what Moses and that, that younger figure says, Moshe, Kila'em, uh, arrest them. And he says, arrest them? You know, I want to celebrate them because of what they have uh, achieved. You know, and, and it's interesting. We, we don't get too many opportunities like that. And Moshe, evidently, this is, this is it. This is the only opportunity where you can see that, that the potential of, of at least equality or the potential of shared experience exists. And he's, he's jubilant about that. Uh, it's it's an amazing moment. It really it's a it it goes to I mean it really is to goes to the character of Moshe that that he's able to feel content, tremendous contentment that other people share his experience. So I would add I may have missed what you, part of what you said, Jeremy, is that Moses always sees himself as a vessel of God, and that's why he can be humble. It's not his leadership. It's God's leadership, and he's the vessel, and that's why perhaps he can embrace other people in their role, because ultimately everyone is following God, and that's what we're looking for. I'll tell you my own personal, in my own personal davening experience, um, you know, a line that uh, until the last three months I have almost always, my entire life, only said in public, or very rarely private davening on Shabbat morning, um, almost always in public davening, um, in the in the Shacharit Amida, Yismach Moshe b'Matnat Chelko ki Eved Neeman Karatalo. So I'm, I'm usually I say this line. I'm sitting in my synagogue, and and sometimes you know it's like we said in synagogue life, everyone's always happy and nobody's ever critical. So sometimes I'm in I'm in shul, and I think Yismach Moshe b'Matnat Chelko. Moses was happy with his lot in life. Ki eved ne'eman He aspired to be a faithful servant. That's a pretty, pretty wonderful thing to be. Pretty good. And it's, it's interesting how, how the, the tefillah uh, kind of glosses over these, these really despairing moments. You know, he, he was like, kill me now is not a happy moment. And speaking of not a happy moment, so the Torah, the, the Parsha ends with, with, a very difficult moment. Um, but to the bear Miriam, uh, she and Miriam Be'aron, they, they speak about their brother, about their, the Kushite woman. And it's a, it's a very, very troubling and difficult passage. Uh, for that, Miriam is afflicted with the, the scale or the skin or the disease of Tzarat, the, the disease of becoming white, an interesting parallel. The woman is a Kushite woman, which is identified as black, and she turns completely white. Interesting. Uh, you know, I, 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 by the way, I, I, yeah, we finished finish saying. No, El Narifan Allah is Moshe's prayer, but go ahead, comment. Um, uh, you know, in America, I, I'm pretty sure it's not shot. I'm really pretty confident that the Bible, in its own context, is not talking about a that the complaints that Aaron and Miriam make about Moses is not you know like a racially motivated or a bigoted thing because she's she's Ethiopian 
Um, I, I don't really, I really don't think that that's what this ancient text is saying. But almost every American, when they read this text, given our society and its problems, and the moment that we're going in right now, cannot help but, but sort of hear um, a, 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 a kind of a racist overtone that, that the problem is that she's black and the punishment is that, that Miriam gets scorched white or something like that. The, the color and skin, skin color elements in this story are, are really quite interesting. And, e and, and even though I think it would be, you know, highly drashic to turn it in that way, well, drash is okay, and, and one, could, one could play with the story in that way. Where would you take, you know, the Moses's reaction, and and Moses intercedes on his on behalf of his sister, and then by Yitzhak Moshe, and and your comments on that as a, a prayer. Yeah, Moses is Moses is as as you guys alluded to before. Aaron and Miriam say, "Well, wait, wait, what are we? You know, chopped liver here. God also speaks to us. Why? Who made Moses the boss?" And God says, listen, you know, my, my relationship with Moses is really different. Um, other people get some images. Other people get some, some glimpses of me in a, in a dream. But I speak to Moses face-to-face, uh, pal-pal. -face, I speak mouth-mouth, face-to-face. Um, and Moses is so modest. Um, he is anav mikol adam. He is, he is the most modest person on earth. And he essentially, first of all, his, his reaction is, is the very definition of what is beneficent. He cares for her because it's not about him. That's what it is to be enough, is to be modest, uh, is, is to know that as you go through life, it's not about me and my place. Um, I think that when we feel jealousy, it's because deep down we're like uncertain about our place and status and we feel weak and bad about, you know, why do people boast? They boast because they feel bad. And they, 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 they act like I'm so special, but they only boast because they're, they're feeling, you know, feeling insecure. And Moses has nothing to feel insecure about. Well, could that be a reason for the brevity of the prayer? Because the brevity of the prayer is, I don't, I don't need to go into long perorations here. I just need one thing, heal her, heal her now. Uh, Barry, you want to? Well, he has this immediate connection. I was struck by the phrase that God can trust Moshe. That's why he could appear to him mouth to mouth. The other people he can't trust, so he has to appear in dreams. And I was thinking that perhaps the problem for Aaron and Miriam, and it's a problem that many of us have, you see this in the sports world a lot, it's often difficult to appreciate someone who is greater than we are. You know, you read about athletes that think that they're as good as the greatest in the game when we all know that they're not. You know, the to be a major league, I mean, my sport is baseball, so to be a major league baseball player certainly sets you apart from everyone else. But the 25th guy on the team is not as good as the first guy on the team. And even a lot of times the second and third guy on the team are not as great as the first guy, and they can't always see that. You have to be able to recognize other people's greatness and admire it. And it seems here, at least, Miriam and Aaron could not admire it. And God's response is to appear suddenly, because Moses can deal with that sudden appearance, 
and Miriam and Aaron cannot. It's interesting to me that you mentioned about the sports world because, um, you know, here as we were recording this now in the, in the spring of 2020, there were, the, there were these about your hometown, Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan made these movies, you know, The Last Dance, uh, a documentary about the, the Bulls' sixth championship season. And as one of the Chicago sports writers said, um, this should be called Based on a True Story. That is to say, Michael Jordan told this story that in, in some cases was like significantly denigrating of some of the teammates and really and really elevating him. Obviously, Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. Uh, my children think it's LeBron, but that's because they don't remember Michael. Um, but like, how could Michael Jordan have to feel in this in this like insecure kind of sneaky way that he's got to put down the other people? He's Michael Jordan, but he's not like Moshe. <laughs> not he's not content to recognize greatness in others. Interesting, you know. I mean, I I come from the hockey world, so in hockey, you know, it's 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 all about humility. Right. Gretzky, you know, when he retired, he said, look, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to get into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, I kind of think I'm going to get into the Hall of Fame. Well, our time, you know, it's, it's so it's so wonderful to, to kind of get to familiar places. And I love the fact that barrier baseball, Jeremy, basketball and I'm hockey. And that that just makes it all work nicely. Uh, and it, and it's because the Canadians. It, Canadians are very modest folk. Indeed, indeed. We're, we're, we're not that bad. We're not bad at all. <laughs> well, our, our time has really come to a conclusion. And um, we've had this so, you know, again, if, if anything, what we've discovered is there's just so much richness in, in this Parsha, every Parsha. Uh, just to, to scratch the surface of some of these stories has been uh, a great pleasure. Uh, we've 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 discovered some interesting things, you know, about humility, about disruption, about complaining, and about the journey, being on the journey, and that's where we are. The three of us, we're on the journey together through the desert, heading to the promised land, and it's been a great journey so far. We wish all the people accompanying on us. I think we're up to about twelve. Have a great Shabbat, beautiful Shabbat. Enjoy Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.